A lot of my ministry is involved in churches that are not like, like Harvest Bible Chapel here in Fairfax. It's churches where there's been pastoral failures. It's churches where there's just been no growth, no nothing. It's been defeated. And, and so a lot of my ministry deals with trying to help churches either revitalize, work through transition, and, uh, and God has, I think, prepared me for that in many ways over just a few years of ministry. I think it's 45 now plus uh, years of pastoral ministry. And uh, my wife and I often say we've been through We've been through that thrill of victory where church is going great, and we've been known the agony of defeat. We've known both. But, you know, one of the things that, that is a realization is there's a cycle for churches. And I often have to, one of the first things I have to do when I come into a church is, is assess, where is the church? Now, if I can have my diagram, well, it's up here already, okay. Uh, if you can see all the way over here in the bottom, some of you may not be able to see. I'll try to move a little bit out of the way so you can see. All the way over on the... Uh, your left on the bottom there is birth. That's the exciting time. That's where everybody's getting going. Everybody thinks, oh, the church is great. And then you move into a missional stage, which gets it going. And evangelism's taking place. There's discipleship taking place. There's, there's vision casting that's going on. And everybody's excited. Comes to a point where in that missional stage, there needs to be some organization. And organization's a good thing. It's a good thing. And in that organizational stage, you begin to build the mission. You begin to get your doctrine firmed up, and everybody's getting on target. You get the leadership working, and uh, planning strategy becomes a very effective tool. But that's a danger point. That's the danger setting. Because when you get so organized, often what happens is you become inward. It's all about us. It's all about taking care of one another, which is important. And then when I move towards stabilization or plateau, preservation inward, this is where churches are stagnant, as I would say. There's no new life coming in. You know what happens in your body if there aren't new cells developing? I'm not a biologist by any means, or I don't know much about the human body, but I think that if you don't have cells that are growing, you die. And so that's what happens. They move over into the bottom part here, total stagnation or even death. They just live there, sort of, unless there's a revitalization point where there's a recognition. And by the way, that's the hardest thing. You know, one of the hardest things for churches is to recognize that what they are, to recognize what they've lost, because they think they've still got it. You know, it's amazing to me. I'll go into some churches that I, I can see from the very outset that they're dead. They think they're alive. Of course, there's one of the churches in Revelation that talks about that. But there's got to be repentance, too. And there's got to be some sense of return, renew, and rebirth to move back to that missional stage. Well, the interesting statistic that just came out recently by a guy named Tom Rainer is this. 65% of our churches are somewheres between these two points. 65% have lost the vision, are not growing. Praise God, you're not one of those, right? If we're hearing amen, praise God. Yeah, we really we ought to praise God for it. Don't think every church has is, is got the life you got. I mean, I, you know, you mentioned those hundred stories. By the way, I was on your website, and I looked at a few of those. That's great. You know, God's moving. He's working. Don't lose the excitement of it. And even though I'm going to use a passage today 
as we come to it, that, that is talking about a church that's lost it. I'm not saying you've lost it. What I'm saying is you've got to keep it. You've got to make sure that it stays there. That that life and that newness of life and, and, and just gets built up and growing. With that, let's move to the church at Ephesus. Oh, by the way, I said 65% are on plateau. 20% are in that point of um, actually nearing death. And 15% are growing churches. You're one of the 15% of churches in America right now. Our GCC churches, almost all of them that I know of, are part of that few 15% of churches that are growing. Let's not lose our excitement about that in our GCC movement. We take our eyes off of the focus of reaching people. We take our eyes off the Great Commission. we got a problem. And the reason our eyes come off it is because of what we see in the church at Ephesus. Notice the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. We read this. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Do you realize that Jesus is walking through our church today? Get that picture in your head today. There's the Lord there. There he is. There he is. He's walking through here right now. He knows what's going on. He, he doesn't only see what's happening on stage. He knows what's going on in each one of us. That's the picture there. Imagine if every Sunday morning you come in here and you think, Jesus is here. I hope you do think that. But he is. Don't lose that picture. But then he goes on to say, I know your good deeds, your works. This was a church which was doing good things. He goes on to say, your toil, your serving spirit, and your patient endurance of how you bear strong morally, I would put there, with those who are evil. You cannot bear, rather, those who are evil. You've tested. There's a strong doctrine in this church. Those who call themselves the apostles and are not and are found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. Man, if we stopped there about this church, we'd think they got it together, wouldn't we? That's a, they've got it. They've got the works. They've got the doctrine. They've got everything they need to be the kind of church they ought to be. But Jesus goes on to give them a warning. And he says this. But. That word in Scripture is sometimes a great word. Because it talks about when we were dead in our trespasses. But God. But here it's the opposite. But. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That's the love you have right now. I think this church, in many ways, is still in that missional and early ages of organizational stages, which you're at that point where there's that excitement, where there's that first love. Write it down. Remember it. Don't forget what it's like to be where you are now with the Lord. Unless, of course, you're not. I mean, there's a chance right now that there might even be some here who, you know, they're just here out of routine. 
There's not that sense of love that's there. See, this church reminds me of a story of a couple, and it goes back a few years, because you remember when cars had the bench seat, the front, front bench seat, you know? And um, an old, older man was driving along in his car, and his wife was sitting by the door, and they pulled up next to another car, and this young couple was sitting all snuggled up right next to each other, you know, and she was in the middle seat. And she looked over at her husband and said, do you remember when we used to sit like that? And the man said, I haven't moved. <laughs> well, you know something? God hasn't moved. God wants that first love that you had for him to be vital, to be going. He doesn't want you to lose that sense that you had when you first came to Jesus. When you first got to that point where you recognized that God loves me. It's important for us to tell our story. Whether it's the story of when Christ first saved us. Whether it's when God does something in our lives. Because we forget so easily. We forget it so easily. See, this morning, really what I have is a basic message for you. It's very basic. Because I believe this. God always wants us to keep the first thing the first thing. He wants us to keep the most important thing the most important thing. This church lost that concept. And I don't see it as a, a judgment or a, I'm not speaking of it as a sort of conviction toward you, but I'm just saying keep the love you have lest you move into that area of stagnation. But now let me raise a question. Let's try to define that love. How do you define that kind of love? I think the best definition of the kind of love we ought to have is unconditional love. Love that is beyond us. Love that, that doesn't have limits. Now, get one thing straight. Love is never tolerance for sin. But love says, I don't care what your sin is. God's ready to forgive. God loves you. And to understand unconditional love, we need to remember unconditional love commences with God. God's love. That's where it begins. It all begins with God's love for us. You know, there, there was a book a number of years ago, and I forget exactly what the title is, but the subtitle was this. You can't love God unless you love yourself by Robert Schuller. Let me tell you something. The guy's got it backwards. He's got it backwards. I think he's with the Lord now, so I don't know. But he's got it backwards. Until you understand God's love, you're not going to be able to love yourself. Oh, you, you, may, you may have some kind of idea about yourself, and it may be a warped idea because the reality is that we're corrupted sinners, and, and if we, unless we understand God's love, that's what we are. Now, we're deceived often. Satan's great at that. He he's, he's wants us to think that we're great. He wants, him to, wants us to think we're lovable. But the reality is this, we're not. So therefore, we've got to begin with understanding God's love, which first of all, let me suggest that God's love is universal. 
We all know John 3.16, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a simple, basic truth that shatters our understanding. God loved the world when the world is in complete contrast to what he desires. God loves the people in the world when they have basically turned their back on God and they've just rejected him. He loves them. A universal love. It doesn't have a bunch of conditions and say, well, if these things are characteristic in your life, I love you. No, it's universal. It's universal. He says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't want anybody to die and go to hell. That's universal love. Keep the first things first, for God so loved the world. He loves that person that in your neighborhood, maybe, that is not so lovable. He loves that coworker who's not so lovable. And the way that coworker is going to discover his love is by you. You're that manifestation. But not only is his love universal, his love is undeserved love. We love because he loved first. We don't love other people because we started the love. As a matter of fact, I even have a conviction that a man can't really love his wife as he ought to love her unless he knows God's love. Until you understand that, you can't understand anything else about love. Because all else that happens with love is, is, is corrupted ideas, distorted ideas about what love is. And we live in a world where that's all distorted. And we're seeing it more and more in ugly places and everything else. But God's love is undeserved. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Hold it. Notice that everyone who loves is born of God. If we are born of God, then we ought to love. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in the way, in this way. God sent his son, his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the propitiation for our sin. See, love never starts with us. It starts with God. And when you see that his love is so undeserved, it, it, it should... Give us a struggle. I remember one time I had a car accident. And um, it was an older car. It wasn't great. It was definitely totaled. Everybody was healthy in the car. Good. The next morning I came to church. And I guess they knew that I probably didn't have much at that time. I mean, I'm not playing poverty. I'm not claiming, you know, had nothing to eat, nothing like that. Well, 
someone came up to me and gave me an envelope. And they said, so-and-so isn't able to be here today, but want you to have this. I didn't even know they knew about the accident. It happened on Saturday. And then there was a gift that I didn't deserve. But to this day, I often ask myself, how can I ever say thank you to that person? I really needed it. I mean, I'm not going to say I didn't need it because I couldn't replace the car. And God is just undeserved. And we ought to be asking ourselves the question always, how can I say thank you, Lord? How can I say thank you, Lord? I always got disturbed when in Bible college, and I can still remember back then, but um, I always remember I had one teacher, and she was a Christian ed teacher, and we had to take a Christian ed course. And she would open every class with, thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul. And I thought to myself, man, this is, this is, you know, this is too low. We're in college. We're training for ministry. You know, we're, we're singing this children's song every single time we come to class. Hey, we need to sing it more. It's an old song. Thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul. Because we forget. We forget. But that's where we begin to understand God's love. And it begins when we understand salvation. It begins when I bow on my knee and say, Lord, thank you for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for dying on a cross for me. See, but the answer to that question is, thank you, Lord. How, is how, how can I say thank you? The Lord gives us the answer. Do you know it? He gives us the answer. In Mark chapter 12, when Jesus was asked the question, what was the greatest commandment? It was given. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. There it is. See, remember, unconditional love commences in our love toward God. Or rather, uh, commanded. We're commanded to love God. And by the way, it's a command. Never forget that it's a command. One of my things I love in counseling is that sometimes, you know, in counseling, you can be a little bit hard-nosed or a little bit crass, whatever your term language is. Well, I, I love it when a couple used to come into my office and say, well, I don't love them anymore. And I'd look them square in the eyes and say, I don't care. Now, I'm serious. I did this. I won't tell you how many times. Look at them. I don't care. I said, what do you mean I don't care? Well, I'm going to tell you something. It's not how you feel. Love is not about when your heart started pounding when you saw her. Love is about making commitment to act upon something. Love is when you say, I know God's commandment is to love God with all my heart and soul. It's not a choice. It's not an option. Everything else in the commandments flows from that. So let's look at that a little bit. First of all, we must surrender our passion, our heart. We've all got passions. You know, it's amazing to me, some people, how much passion they have for hunting. My son, a chemical engineer, he says, why would I want to go out in the woods and sit there in the cold and shoot something when I go in the market and buy my steak? <laughs> I know, some of you are hunters, and I just insulted you, but no. <laughs> no, really. You know, but some people are so passionate about it, 
that they even begin to say, well, I can worship in the woods. Yes, you can. But that's not a substitute for worshiping in the fellowship. It's never a substitute. It's another part of worship, yes, maybe. But passion. We need to yield our most passion, the things we're most passionate about over to the Lord. You know, there's things we want in life. We're passionate about. We'll do anything for it. Some people are so passionate and wanting to get married that they wind up marrying the wrong person. See, they let their passions get away. They weren't under the control of the Lord. But you see, our, our passion, our heart, has got to be yours, Lord. My love, Lord, is first and foremost for you. You know, my wife and I are blessed with um, four kids, all walking with the Lord, 11 grandkids, more to come yet, it seems, at least possibly. And, <laughs> and I love them, love my wife. But I have to ask a question. Is he first in my love? Because if we don't love him first, we're not going to how to love all the rest. And it's difficult at times. But we've got to just surrender it and say, Lord, you're my passion. You know, it's really sad when, when someone or a church abandons their first love. Their love that, that just is so impulsive so driven toward the Lord. But even our passion, we need to understand he says something else here. And to love the Lord your God with all your soul. I'm calling it purity. Now you say, why do I call it purity? Well, you see, your soul is the place where your conscience, conscience works. And you know what the reality is? Our consciences are depraved. They're corrupted. Oh, there's a certain amount of limited sense of right and wrong that we still have. But for the most part, they're corrupted. Until you come to Jesus Christ. When you come to him and confess your sin, your soul is cleansed. Remember, your soul is that eternal part that's not here when the body's gone. It's that part that goes into the presence of the Lord. And so the soul. Oh, what a, what a, we need to yield it to him. Be sure we're pure in every way. You know, as I said just a few moments ago, and I'm not trying to, I don't, not looking at a problem at all, but there is so much impurity today in so many different ways. I mean, you can't go too far, even in churches and pastors and leaders who we expect something greater of where you don't find impurity particularly internet and other things just corrupting our sense of purity see if we really love the Lord we submit all that's in us to him 
we, we have a pure conscience, a pure sense of our soul before him. And then he goes on to say, also with all your mind or your plans, God's plans. God's plans. You know, we all have plans, don't we? We all know what we want in life. What happens when God changes it? What happens when God says no to something to you? What happens when suddenly God opens up something for you and you say, I don't really want that? Have you submitted to him? Have you surrendered? Are you getting the idea, by the way, that love is really about surrender? That's what love is all about, is surrendering. When, when you love your spouse, you surrender certain rights. You surrender to them. That's love. When you love your kids, you surrender certain things. My wife surrenders an immense amount of time watching some of those 11 grandchildren. <laughs> it changed our plans. I mean, five years ago when I transitioned out of the church, we had ideas about how things were going to flow. Well, we knew we were still going to do some time in ministry, but suddenly I realized that I'm still 40-plus hours a week in ministry, and my wife is probably doing 50 hours a week in child care. May not be exaggerating, but maybe a little. But, you know, plans change. But we love our grandkids. I love seeing churches like Harvest Fairfax. Love seeing what happens. I mean, Jeff might have puffed up my ego a little bit, but I hope not. But, uh, it, it, but it's a blessing. And I thank the Lord that he's giving me the health and the stamina to be there doing that. But, you know, our plans, are they submitted to the Lord? You know, there's one thing about God's plans. They often call for a simple thing called change. And you know what the problem with those churches in that organizational stage and stagnation stage are? They don't want to change. They don't want to sing a new song. Oh, they want new people to come in, but they want new people to come in and and, and fit their mold. Well, the reality is churches today that are growing are not having people that come in to fit their mold. They're reaching out unconditionally to people outside. They're welcoming people that you may not want to welcome, you may feel uncomfortable with. But that's what we ought to be, isn't it? First song, welcome. Welcome the Lord, but welcome others. Then, then the next thing it tells us about loving the Lord is we must, with all your strength, we must surrender our power. And we, we, we have strength and we have power. Is it really committed to the Lord? Are we willing to give up all of our energy to the Lord? You know, I, I have a real struggle with, with some preachers and who may have great content, and I'm glad they do have good content, but they have no life. Somehow or another, they can go through a whole message just standing there reading the thing, word for word. I mean, I, I kind of have a problem with that. I'm, I don't think Jeff does that, so I, I know he doesn't. So um, yeah, we, we need life up here. But power, strength needs to be there. 
See, a church that is vital calls us to love as he loves us unconditionally. In other words, giving all up for him. That's what it calls for. That's the first love. You know, I think of the sacrifice of time that some of the team here are given when they come out here every Sunday with their trailer and they set up all this stuff every week after week after week. That's got to be tiring, isn't it? I see a few heads shaking, yes. <laughs> He's probably one of the ones that does it the most. It's tiring. But, man, praise God for that kind of thing. You know, ministry can be tiring, but we give our strength. Give it up. But, you know, that's what God calls us to love him. But he also calls us something else. The second greatest commandment Jesus put was this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Or rather, excuse me, love the Lord your God as yourself. And there is no other commandment greater than these. Love others. Love other people. You see, surrender unconditional love. Remember, unconditional love commissions the church. If we know God's love is unconditional, then we've got a mission. Love your little track out there about being missional. We've got to be on mission. See, what happens with those churches in that organizational stage or, the, or worse yet in the stagnation stage is they're not focusing mission outside. They're focusing inside. They're focusing on what's in it for me. Am I going to get my warm fuzzies every week? Am I going to have the people around me that I'm all comfortable with? See, unconditional love realizes we've got a mission. And, and it does begin in expressing worship, by the way. I think worship is so important in the day and age in which we're in to, com to fulfill the mission. You know, it used to be a time where the most important second person on the team was a youth pastor. I really believe with all my heart now that the most important part is a worship leader, particularly if, you, if you're like me and you cannot sing at all. And uh, I already warned the guys over there, they cannot turn the mic on, uh, my mic on when we're singing, just in case I happen to be singing, because everybody will run for the doors and think it's a problem. Because, and, and it's truer than you might realize, just ask my wife. <laughs> Don't ask her, she'll tell you the truth that it's that bad. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we need parts in the body. And worship is such a vital part of our lives. You know, I grew up in the day and age, and I even started out for many years in ministry, where, where worship was pretty stagnant. But it was okay back then. I mean, if you go back to the 70s, and most of you weren't even thought of at that time, but, uh, but you go back to the early 60s and 70s, and what you find out is that basically people didn't care about music in the church. They didn't. They liked the old traditional hymns, and they liked them for one reason. They had good theology, for the most part. They just wanted the teaching. One of my mentors was a man who had one of the most effective churches in New Jersey during, I would say, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I asked him one time, I said, um, 
now that you're retiring, he was also president, by the way, of the Bible college I went to. And I said to him, I said, now, Doc, I said, um, why don't you teach pastoral theology? Why would I want to do that? I said, well, you, you pastored one of the most effective churches in New Jersey for, for years. Church that continued to grow, 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 grow. He said, for 37 years in that church, I did one thing. I preached. And by the way, he preached for about an hour to an hour and 15 preaching time every Sunday. But you would never get bored in it. I can guarantee you that. He was, he was a phenomenal preacher. But he said, I don't know how to lead a church in the 80s. That was the 80s. He said, they need things that I don't have. You know, that's a wise old man. Yeah, he was probably about the age I am now then. <laughs> but he's wise. He knew the church needed something more now than it needed for all those years. People changed. Unfortunately, it took the church a while to catch up with the changes. We need worship. It's one of the greatest ways in which we effectively communicate our mission. And, of course, the second thing is we need to extend our witness. Great Commission. I, I love the title of the Great Commission Collective. What a title, Great Commission. Isn't that what it's all about? The collective, churches getting together, functioning together as a, a body. I just was working with a church that I'm working with now in transition, and one of the things I had to teach them was this. There is value in collective relationships for the gospel. They had the stupidest constitution, church constitution that I've ever seen in my life. Excuse me for the word stupid. <laughs> it said they could never be a part of a denomination in any way. Fortunately, they used the word denomination. And then with that, they used the word that infringes upon autonomy and independence. We couldn't, and that statement, by the way, could not be changed. It was an unchangeable statement in the Constitution. So tricky dick here, or whatever I am. We, we worked up a new statement for the Constitution. A new section on the Constitution was associations. And basically what we said was this. We recognize in Scripture that churches related to one another, encouraged one another, associated with one another, and therefore we seek to be part of, of associations and relationships that can help us further the Great Commission. Notice never used the word denomination. I did, we did say in the statement they couldn't infringe upon autonomy or independence. Okay, fine. Took away all the problems of the Constitution. At least we hope it's going to do it. <laughs> Lawyers said it would, so I guess it does, right? Are there any lawyers here? <laughs> but, you know, it, we need association. The Great Commission Collective, what a, what a name. Uh, and what a focus we ought to have. And you see, your first love is a result of another church or individual having a Great Commission focus. You realize that? Someone had a Great Commission. They knew someone, you, had to be reached with the gospel. So what did they do? They shared the gospel with you. This church began because another church felt the need to establish another church that could communicate the gospel in a new area with perhaps some new dynamics. 
Praise God. That's first love. See, the church at Ephesus, they abandoned that first love. They became inwardly focused, doing the right things, right doctrine. But they lost their passion. Oh, how sad it is when we lose our passion. Yeah, when a couple comes in and says they don't love each other, I understand what they mean. They've lost the passion. But I can tell them a simple way to renew that passion. Love one another. Love what God calls us to do. See, that builds the first, that's the first love. The Great Commission. Don't lose it. My son-in-law, who's an incredibly gifted preacher, again, I think he got the gift from his wife, which she couldn't pastor, so he could. <laughs> kidding, kidding, kidding. Jerry's a great guy. But he is an illustration recently, and I, I want to steal it from him. He said there's four words which we want our kids to know our children to learn. There's four words they often speak very quickly, sometimes in the wrong way, but we'll be in the top. Saying yes. You ever notice how hard it is to get a little child to say yes? They say no very easily, but they don't say yes so much. But learning to say yes to God's plans. But we do need to teach our children to say no, too. Don't we? We need to teach our children to say no to self-interest. We need to teach our children to say no to evil things. We need to say no to self-plans and seek God's plan. Then it calls us to plead, say please, with God for power. We can't fulfill the Great Commission without his power. Now, praise God there's power coming. Praise God there's power in the pulpit. Praise God there's power in the word. But until we're pleading and saying, Lord, give us your power. That's when we accomplish it. That's when that first love stays fresh. And then last of all, remember to say thank you. Remember to say thank you. For all things. Giving thanks at all times, the scripture says. You mean even when things are going bad? Yeah. Look for something to give thanks for. See, that's what we need to do. Look for something to give thanks for. It'll change your attitude. It'll change relationships. It'll allow you to get back to thinking and thanking God for your salvation. And when you thank God for your salvation, you'll want to share it with somebody else. See, keeping your first love fervent means keeping the most important, the most important. I encourage you. You've got great love here. I sense it. I feel it. I know it because I know your pastor. Keep it. Don't abandon it. Treasure it. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are for your love. And Father, I, I just want to take a moment closing prayer to just perhaps there's someone here who is struggling with this idea of God's unconditional love Lord I pray that you would by your Holy Spirit speak to their heart to their mind just give them any humility that would enable them to come down to 
Pastor Jeff or to one of the elders or myself, Lord, after the service and just, just tell us they want to know. They're not certain. They've got a question. It would give us no greater joy than to know that someone today discovered afresh and new or for the first time your love. And Father, for those who know this love, may we keep it fresh. May we treasure it. May we feed our love by loving you. We ask in Jesus' name.